This is the McKinsey Podcast, where we help you make sense out of our world's toughest business challenges. Welcome to the show. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. Women leaders are voting with their feet. They're saying, I want the return on my investment. I know I'm putting in extra time and doing double duty in some cases. And so I will move in the direction of where I see opportunity that rewards that effort. That's McKinsey senior partner Alexis Krivkovich. She joins me and senior partner Lorena Yee to discuss how women leaders are leaving their jobs in record numbers in search of better opportunities. It's part of our latest research on women in the workplace. After everyone's talking about chat GPT and other forms of generative AI, if you're unclear about what generative AI is, we'll fill you in with an excerpt from our McKinsey Explainer series. Alexis and Lorena, welcome back, and thanks so much for joining us today. Great to be here. Wonderful to be here. As part of this year's Women in the Workplace research, you and the team conducted a big range of interviews with women across corporate America, and I'd like to start by sharing one of those interviews. The woman self-identified as a senior manager in her organization and as a South Asian immigrant to the U.S. Here's what she told us. I've asked many times what I can do to get promoted, and I don't get a good answer. I'm thinking of leaving, and it will be my company's loss since they didn't offer me the opportunity to advance. I hit a ceiling that did not need to be there. Let's unpack that a little bit. Lorena, what does the research tell us about what impedes women most in our efforts to advance? Lucia, I think that story really tells us that loyalty has its limits. And women like this woman are fed up. And that's the genesis of the great breakup this year, which is they are not leaving the workforce. They are leaving their specific jobs in search of better opportunities. And even in this economic climate, they are finding there are better opportunities. She's saying, I want to succeed. I want to be here. I am working really hard and I am actually driving results. Yet every day I receive signals that I can't break that ceiling. I can't break out. And so maybe I should take the risk and go somewhere else. And so behind that, there's a lot of data. But just to give you an example of some of the things that may be holding her back on a day-to-day basis, you know, we found that 37% of women leaders had a coworker take credit for their idea and that they were two times more likely to be mistaken for someone junior. That's just the beginning of a very long list of things that are statistically happening. And then you saw that story and you can understand why she said, maybe it's time for me to bet on myself. We've talked in previous years about women being likelier than their male colleagues to invest in diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. So do we see this investment that women are disproportionately making beginning to be recognized in any meaningful way in performance evaluations and so forth? The short answer is no, we don't yet. So The vast majority of companies now have diversity, equity, inclusion as part of their overall corporate goals. Most of them have moved on a set of initiatives to respond to that. 
but disproportionately we see women leaders stepping in to carry that weight and move those initiatives forward. In fact, women leaders do twice the DE&I work as their male peers, and yet only about a quarter of companies formally recognize it in their performance reviews. And they admit this, that they haven't baked it in. And when we talk to women leaders, they say, this is a passion project, this is a priority, this is a necessity, because I see all these diverse younger talents looking up at me waiting for me to use my position and my opportunity to change the game for them. And so they're they're not willing to let it go. And yet they recognize that this isn't helping advance their careers, that while their companies ask them and again and again to step in, they don't reward them for that extra effort. You've previously called that emotional housekeeping. These efforts can actually contribute to our own burnout. Is that vicious cycle still in effect? Are we seeing that continue? We still see burnout. So 43% of women in corporate America said they were burnt out. But as we are back to work in a pre-COVID more setting, as we've come back, what we see is that women have very high ambitions, as they always have. And they are not seeing the ability to fulfill those ambitions in the places that they work. That is not because they're burnt out. That is because they are actually looking for a place that's actually going to be reciprocal in its relationship with them. To put in the scale of perspective, for every one manager director that was promoted up, two decided to leave this year. So one up, two out. And so even if a company feels that they may be promoting a couple of women, the net picture is that women aren't feeling that this is the environment for them to thrive. And what you're saying is women leaders are actually shopping around for better jobs and better environments. They're not exiting the workplace altogether. Or is it a mix? What we see and what we hear from women is they want to return on the investment for their loyalty and for their effort. And we've long talked about the double shift that we see women holding, which is disproportionate household responsibilities, irrespective of their earning level, irrespective of how senior they rise in their organization. As men tend to shed those responsibilities, women persistently carry them forward. And during COVID, that double shift exploded into the double-double for many women. But what Lorraine is describing is also a triple shift, which is a rising and different expectation for women leaders in the workplace as well. So call it emotional labor, call it good leadership. They do far more of the sponsorship than their male peers. They disproportionately hold the diversity and inclusion responsibilities. They check in with employees more on wellness, on workload, on balance. Um, So they're showing up the way that companies say they want Uh, but they don't get rewarded formally for it. And so many of them are looking around and saying there's got to be a better deal. What did the research tell us about what women are actively looking for in terms of workplace culture? They are looking for the ability to advance. They are looking for flexibility and choice in terms of where, when, and how they work. They are looking for companies that authentically prioritize DEI, and they are looking for a manager, a sponsor, and people who are backing their careers, and they're looking for feedback. 
be that constructive things they need to work on or be that positive reinforcement of things that are working on. These don't seem very complicated. And what's really interesting is that senior women want these things. And this year, when we looked at young women, women under 30, women in their early 20s, what they said is, we want all of these things too, but at a higher intensity, we absolutely care. We absolutely want to be in organizations that are prioritizing DEI. We absolutely want flexibility. Now, at the same time, they know they need to deliver performance results. But what's interesting is that for young women, we found that two-thirds of them want to be leaders, and they're they're willing to expect those type of things in their organizations. And quite frankly, as Alexis said, companies haven't stepped up to the plate, particularly this last year. So let's go a little deeper into one of the features you mentioned, flexibility and the ability to work remotely. Here, I'll share a little bit from one of the women you interviewed who had that opportunity. She identifies as a hybrid employee, and she is an East Asian woman at the manager level. Here's what she said. I found that remote work is really, really role-based. Sometimes we do need to be in a team working environment for a project, but other than that, if someone can work better and feel more comfortable by working remotely, then why not? So let's start with why a flexible and a hybrid workplace might be especially important to women. Everybody wants to see more flex built in in the future. So this isn't only a women story here. This is, in fact, a tectonic shift happening where we collapsed you know, a decade's worth of technology change and how that was going to revolutionize expectations in the workplace and the physical hybrid and virtual into a much shorter period of time. But the reason it's also a women's story is because the number one thing women cited pre-pandemic that would help them be more all in in the workplace was flexibility, greater flexibility in a number of different forms. The hours we expect, where you physically get the job done, um, what we mean by FaceTime and the value attributed to that. And so in this moment, women are saying, in fact, half of them are saying it's a top three criteria when I think about job opportunity. I value it and I evaluate it the way I do benefits and other factors. Um, So they care about it tremendously. And it's worth noting that part of why they care is because the environment they were in before wasn't wired perfectly for them. When you look at the experience for women, particularly women of color, particularly those with disability, what they describe is an in-person work environment that has more bias, that has more othering and more microaggressions associated with it. So part of what they value in this hybrid we're moving towards is the fact that Elements of virtual minimized some aspects of that bias that they faced day in, day out in a way that their male peers never did. What are a few tactics you've seen companies use in order to cultivate a really flourishing culture in a hybrid world? Well, I think it's important to tee off of what Alexis said, which is one of the things we found, curiously enough, is that when women worked remotely, some of the microaggressions, some of those slights, those cuts, the behavior, the othering reduced. And this was also true for people with disabilities. This was also true um, in particular for people of color. Um, so, So it's curious because you might say, well, then we should just all be virtual. I think the other question to ask is, 
why isn't the in-person experience actually better? And so part of what we're seeing right now is the transition of if some things worked well in the virtual world, let's actually use that as a point of inspiration for what the in-person experience should be like. Um, so that's one piece. Another piece is I do think we have to look at the sense of timing. Um, and what I mean by that is there's been an enormous amount of time. You now talk to a lot of people who started work in a remote or in a hybrid environment and have actually never been in person. Whereas at the very first innings of COVID, people had had that. So there may be some really good reasons to be in the office for apprenticeship, for teamwork, for a sense of meaning and connection, for a sense of of, you know, as one company talked about these gatherings, which are big cultural moments. Um, and so what I think a lot of people are trying to figure out is how to have the best of both and how to introduce that into the workplace. And I think what the data is showing is that women really value organizations who are being creative and thoughtful. And they're saying flexibility is important. They're not saying, I want to be remote five days a week. They're saying having the ability at different points in my career to have my work week look differently or that I have some agency in how I shape that, that's really important to me. A number of executives I talk to will admit hand on heart, they really haven't done a lot in the past couple of years to upskill and support managers to get to the place they need to be to show up the way we're now expecting. You know, uh, many managers, when we talk to them, say, this job has become incredibly hard. It's no longer just in person. It's also remote. Some people come in a lot. Some people never want to. I have to ensure there's no bias. I want to make sure there's productivity. I'm asked to check in on well-being, on mental health. I need to rebalance workloads under different conditions in a through cycle with a pandemic and now a uh, macroeconomic environment that's rapidly changing underneath my feet. You know, it's, it's an incredible ask. And when you ask them, what kind of support do you get for that? They will tell you a big zero in many cases. And so I think one thing we see that's incredibly exciting that companies that leaning forward on this are doing is they're not just limiting themselves to what are the trainings I do around inclusion, um, bias busting, and the like. They're saying, what are the trainings I do around great managers? Because great managers create thriving and inclusive teams. And we see that in our own data, both that HR departments recognize the vast majority of them, that they're expecting a lot more of their managers than they did two years ago. But a fraction of managers, only uh, less than 40% would say they actually feel like they get the tools and the equipping they need to deliver in that way. Um, and so I think that's one of the areas where we see a lot of movement is really, what does it look like to invest? Because managers who are great at the job overall are also great at promoting the balance and the opportunity equally amongst their teams and all talent on their teams. We ask employees what their experience is like in the workplace, both men and women. And it's interesting. Women said that this year, only 60% of them felt that they got helpful feedback from their managers. Only 40% of them felt that their managers showed an interest in their career. Only 50% said that they got some help getting credit for work that they had accomplished um, or that they worked in environments that encourage respectful behavior. It's interesting. That list isn't about diversity and equity. That feels like pretty basic leadership. 
And to Alexis's point, if we're not actually enabling and empowering our managers to have the tools and the training and support to do that, and by the way, holding them accountable for that, you're going to have a pretty poor employee experience. Here's a clip of one of our colleagues, talent leader Bonnie Dowling, talking on a recent episode of McKinsey Talks Talent about the evolving role of managers in this new hybrid world. We've got to start training our managers and leaders. We have a different operating model now, right? We've got hybrid virtual operating. They're going to have to learn how to actually check in with employees rather than just walk by cubicles and give high fives. And they're going to have to understand what it means to manage productivity. Butts and seats was never a great measure. Do leaders get this when you're talking to your clients about, for example, attrition and the talent gap? Do you hear them making caring management a priority in any substantive way? Conceptually, I think a number of leaders are recognizing the daylight between strong management skills and uh, those that are lacking. I mean, you can see it in every performance team. And we spend a lot of time <laughs> with leaders talking about how to up the middle performance of their teams. And a lot of that unlock sits with manager capacity. I think there's a need though, to make the link like Lorena was doing to say, this should have double or triple wins behind it. You know, when you get it right, you're not just investing in good managers because good managers create productive teams you will get more inclusion because we see it when it happens. You will get more fairness in the system. Um, you will stamp out more of the bias because what we can see is that people default to the mode they're most comfortable in. And many men will say, I feel most comfortable sponsoring, mentoring, coaching someone who looks like me, who has had an experience like me, who can relate to me. And the problem is when you have a pipeline where four out of every five leaders is a man, that's not going to work. You're not going to get the support you need. And, and especially for women of color, you won't get it at all. And that's precisely what we see in the feedback is that women leaders, particularly women of color, say, I feel like I'm out there left entirely on my own to sort this out. If you're a manager... Where should you begin to focus your energies to really help women members of your team flourish and feel more satisfied at work? I think it comes down to tactics and really practical things. And I, I, I agree. Most leaders, there's nothing that we have said that's important that they wouldn't say, yes, I agree with that. The question is the execution. And so a practical question is, who do you sponsor in your team and what percentage of them are women? And what percentage of them are people of color? And when you are a sponsor, how often do you check in? What have you celebrated recently? So both of you are talking to clients every day. Any examples you could share of companies that have implemented a really successful, flexible program for their employees? I was with a female CEO. She's amazing. And I was asking her, how are you rethinking about things? And one thing that she noticed is Wednesday is a great day because many people 
are converging in the office on Wednesday. And so she went with that instead of a Friday lunch or a Monday huddle. Wednesday's the day that she's always in the office where they do an in-person office lunch where they do more of the kind of office ask me anything, the different activities. And she's very visible on that day. And so some of it is also just changing some of your basic assumptions about how to create cultural moments. And it was great. And I remember having lunch with her on a Wednesday and I was like, my gosh, everybody's here. Are you are you all back in person? She said, no, this is just the day that most people come in. And, and it's also the day that we invest in our social connectivity. So maybe Wednesdays are your new Friday, something like that. How optimistic are you that the outlook for women leaders will actually improve near term in this particular context? I'm always optimistic that things will improve no matter where the economy is, because I do think this is a leadership imperative. And what we've seen over the many years that Alexis and I have done this is that the level of prioritization, the level of urgency is higher and higher on the agenda of business leaders. There have been many layoffs, and those are hard experiences for men and women together. And those are hard experiences for leaders. Have you in that done a check to see if women were disproportionately negatively affected? Have you thought about diversity through that? And so that's just an example of a nudge. But as we think about some really big things happening, how do we think about the diversity lens together as a complement, as something that makes it stronger? If we have those type of tactical actions paired with an overall philosophical commitment, we'll get there. I think the current upheaval raises the bar on having high performance in every team. And we've long seen the connection between diverse teams and performance outcomes that are superior. So as a senior leader in this moment, what I'd be thinking about is how do I ensure I have all the right voices at the table? Because companies are moving incredibly fast because the external environment is changing daily, <laughs> if not uh, maybe hourly, it seems sometimes. And so, you know, five people around the table all thinking the exact same thing aren't helpful in this moment when so much is happening that when I talk to executives, they describe as feeling you know, coming out of left field. What you need is five people looking in five totally different directions who can see the next thing coming. So I feel really good about the premium that's going to be placed on diversity in that context. We have been talking about the challenges faced by women leaders for what feels like eons at this point. Progress is slow. And in the interim, we have tended to various degrees to just keep persisting. What's at stake here? Why should we continue to care about this issue? Women have graduated with nearly 50% of the college degrees for the last 30 years. In our own pipeline of corporate talent, they're nearly at 50% representation. And for women of color, they're also nearly at the representation we'd see um, in the starting workforce. So we have all the talent out there uh, to draw from. And companies that can't figure out how to fish in the full pond where all the talent sits, they will simply lose out over time because they will overcompete for a narrower set than what's available to them in the workforce. And on top of that, we now see for the first time women leaders are voting with their feet. They're saying, I want the return on my investment. 
I know I'm putting in extra time uh, and doing double duty in some cases. And so I will move in the direction of where I see opportunity that rewards that effort. And you take that in combination. And I think what it suggests is that companies that make this a distinctive capability and this being letting all great talent rise uh, as it deserves to for the effort and performance put in, those companies are going to win. Besides opportunity to advance, what are women under 30 seeking at work? What's incredibly exciting is that two-thirds of women under 30 want to be senior leaders. And I say that's incredibly exciting because today, only one in four members of the C-suite and not many more in other senior ranks are women. And yet, women under 30 look up and say, I want to be there at the top. I want to be shaping these companies. And that ambition is rising. In fact, over the last two years, 58% of women under 30 have said they've become more interested in advancement. That sort of shocked me in the context of COVID. Maybe you look at this picture and say, this looks incredibly hard. Burnout, everything, right? But no, in fact, what they're saying is, even more than before, I want these opportunities. So I think that's our bright spot and our opportunity to seize on too. Yet, they're also saying, I expect something different in order to place that bet with you, with your company. And what they expect is that the talk around diversity and inclusion is followed up in the walk and the outcomes that companies are getting. What they expect is that the discussion around a more flexible workplace becomes permanent and baked into practices. And what they expect is that they will have that equal opportunity to advance. And our research on the broken rung shows how persistently that's still not true for women. We still see that for every 100 men, it's only 87 women who move forward. And that's got to change. Let's close there. Alexis and Lorena, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today. For more on our 2022 Women in the Workplace report, look for the link in our show notes or visit us at mckinsey.com. While women continue to struggle to move forward, technology seems to wait for no one. Like generative artificial intelligence or generative AI, if you're not quite sure what it is, let us help. Here's an excerpt from our McKinsey Explainer series about generative AI. Content creators from copywriters to tenured professors are quaking in their boots. It's because generative artificial intelligence is so sophisticated it can be used to create content including code, images, text, simulations, videos, and audio. Audio like the one you're listening to right now. Another algorithm which has gotten a lot of attention is ChatGPT. The GPT stands for Generative Pre-trained Transformer. It describes itself as a nifty form of machine learning that allows computers to generate all sorts of content from music and art to optimizing business processes. These new breakthroughs in the field have the potential to drastically change the way we approach content creation. Since these models are so new, we have yet to see the long tail effect of generative AI. This means that there are some inherent risks involved in using them, some known and some unknown. It can't be emphasized enough that this is a new field. The landscape of risks and opportunities is likely to change rapidly in the coming weeks, months, and years.
But for now, like right now, you're listening to me, a human, Laurel Moglin, producer of the McKinsey Podcast. All previous voices for this segment were generative AI audio. If you're interested in discovering more in-depth descriptions to complicated questions, go to mckinsey.com, plug in the search term explainers, and explore. Thanks so much for listening to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. Find us on mckinsey.com. We'll have a transcript of this episode up shortly. And check out the McKinsey Insights app where you can find this podcast and other helpful content updated daily. And if you would, we'd love for you to leave a rating and a review. We'll see you in two weeks.